Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature how you doing there it's uh, david here and you're listening to the david mcwilliams podcast the podcast that every week tries to make economics a little bit more relevant a little bit less jargony and hopefully more comprehensible to all of us. And this week, we're going to talk about two ideas. One is the unintended consequences of economic decisions. And the second one is the need to be prepared. As we were saying last week, every country, whether you're big or small, lives and dies by the quality of its strategic thinking. And right now, countries like Ireland, but also other countries, have to figure out who are we, where's our place in the world. So this week, we're going to go from Trump to Amazonian fires, to Australia, to Brexit, to Northern Ireland, and back here to Dublin. Lots of things won't appear to be connected at the beginning, but bear with me, and we're going to connect all the dots. Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And as always, I'm joined by my old mate, John. How are you, Ed? Very good. Welcome home. Well, it feels I've been away for a long, yeah. long time. Ireland's living. I know, the state of me. <laughs> <laughs> the raggedy Mac. Yeah, no, before. but it's, uh, it was great. It was great to be, to be away for, for a while. And then to come back to sort of like 25 degree heat. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, let's get into this week's discussion. First of all, have a listen to this. Right now, the Amazon rainforest is being consumed by fire. In fact, there's an 80% increase in fires just over the last year alone. And this comes, of course, after the hottest July our planet has ever seen. The markets quickly plummeted following President Trump's threat to escalate trade tensions with China, ending 623 points down. And late this afternoon, he followed through with even tougher tariffs of his own. China will have to retaliate because President Xi Jinping cannot afford to appear that he allows himself to be bullied by the Trump administration. 
aber man kann sie vielleicht ja auch in den nächsten ähm, 30 Tagen finden. Warum nicht? Dann äh, sind wir einen ganzen Schritt weiter und äh, das, da müssen wir uns äh, anstrengen, dass wir so etwas finden. I think what we need to do is, is remove the backstop and then, and then work, as Chancellor Merkel says. And you've set a very bl a blistering timetable there of, of, of 30 days, if I understood you uh, correctly. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy with that. So there you go, Mac. That is a snapshot of some of the news from around the world in the last 24, 48 hours. And it seems to be getting crazier with now the Amazon on, on fire on one side of the world, US, China trade war escalating, the Dow Jones, the markets collapsing, and the ubiquitous Brexit. Well, let's let's link them all together. I mean, the first thing is about Trump and financial markets, which is a very strange relationship, John, because don't forget, Wall Street didn't vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood were in an extraordinary alliance backing Hillary Clinton. So if you look at the Democrats a la Clinton, they were very much East Coast financiers, West Coast actors, and West Coast tech giants, very much the elite. Yeah. And what they hated was Donald Trump. But when Donald Trump got elected, financial markets being financial markets said, okay, let's give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And they turned into the old Republican-leaning financial markets that as long as he was giving tax cuts for rich, and as long as he was giving tax cuts for corporations, we thought he was cool. Until Trump Mark II emerged in the second part of Trump's presidency. So the yeah. first part of Trump's presidency, he behaved actually like an old school Republican. He cut taxes. He talked about giving corporations tax breaks and how wealthy people created jobs in America. None of which are true. We can talk about that in another podcast, mm, yeah. but that's yeah. the branding. Trump in election mode in the second part is very much the populist, the Steve Bannon type Trump. Yeah. Anti-Mexican, build a wall, anti-China, create enemies, create diversion, and basically run an election exclusively based on solidifying your own power base and picking off enemies. One of the enemies, of course, was China. The financial markets... Everybody seems to be an enemy, by the way. Well, that's true. That's true. But the financial markets really, I believe, didn't believe that Trump would impose tariffs on China. And of course, what Americans know is that free trade has benefited America, or corporate America, enormously mm. over the years. So tariffs on China, which is election Trump, as opposed to President Trump, election Trump is, let's get the enemy, tariffs on China have terrified corporate America because anything that moves to freeze international trade is a disaster for the Americans because the Americans trade. They mightn't be very good at it in the sense of having a massive trade deficit, yeah. but part of the American creed, if you will, is free trade. And Trump has gone against that. So, of course, the markets have been incredibly nervous about the escalation. And what you're also seeing, John, this is the interesting thing, is China is not afraid to escalate itself. Yeah, yeah. So the whole idea We've was that. that Trump would come in, the Chinese would back down. They're not backing down because they don't need to. And they don't want to. And they also, I think, when you talk to people in China, and we've done on the podcast and I've done in private, 
they realize now that they are in a 20 or 30 year war with the United States. Yeah. This idea of the big power, which is on the decline, and the emerging power on the on the up always tend to fight together. Initially, they fight over trade, then they fight over exchange rates, and ultimately, hopefully not, they fight. Yeah. They fight properly. Yeah. And they're also on a, on a different kind of timescale, because America, on a short-termism of the election cycle and... China having this long game, as we spoke about before. Well, okay, so let's talk about the long game. Now, let's link the trade war to what's going on in the Amazon, which is incredibly shocking. Yeah, tell us so about the link there. The link is the following. So when the Americans put tariffs initially in Chinese goods, the Chinese retaliated. What did the Chinese retaliate on? They didn't retaliate on American manufacturing. They retaliated against American agriculture. Yeah. And one of... The major exports from the United States agriculturally to China is what was originally a Chinese product, soya bean. Okay, right. this is an Asian product yeah. that was exported to the United States and to Latin America, which is where the Amazon comes in in a second. And the Chinese have slapped tariffs on American producers of soybeans. They've also encouraged other producers of soybeans to ramp up their production to export to China. Now, I was unaware of all this until about seven years ago, John. I was in an amazing place called Mendoza, which is a city in Argentina, yeah. right up against the Andes. Really beautiful place. Great wines, great food, yeah. amazing temperature. And I'm talking to the father of a mate of mine who was an agronomist. An agronomist is like an agricultural economist. And, of course, agriculture is huge in Argentina. And we were talking about Argentina and the crisis and the peso and the usual Argentinian stuff, because it's always a nightmare there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, this guy said to me, look, he said, if you want to understand Argentina, you've got to understand China. And I said, well, China's okay. very far away. He said, it is very far away. But we are converting huge, huge tracts of the pampas yeah. into soya bean cultivation. And we are supplying soya to the Chinese. So as long as the Chinese continue to buy soya, our agricultural incomes will be underpinned. Now, I had no idea of this. What, what were they converting? They were from? converting from beef and grass. So they, they've reduced their beef output? They've reduced, well, I don't know if they've reduced it. I think they might have increased both in tandem. But this okay. is the first time I've heard of soya as being a Latin American productive crop. Yeah. And of course, if you go north of Argentina into Paraguay, the Paraguayans were destroying huge amounts of the native rainforest there in order to cultivate soya again. And then if you go further north again, what you find is in the last year, because the American production has had tariffs on it, mm-hmm. it means producing soya in non-American countries is much more profitable, okay? And so the Chinese have done two things. One, they've encouraged the Brazilians to produce more soya. The second thing, the Chinese have been buying huge tracts of land in Latin America in order to produce soya. Right. And of course, what's the easiest way to clear land in a forest? You burn it. So the burning of the Amazonian forest by Brazilian farmers is directly linked to Donald Trump and the White House's campaign against the Chinese through the trade war. Once the Chinese reacted and produced tariffs or 
inflicted tariffs upon American agriculture, agricultural production, which is incredibly flexible worldwide. Because yeah. people forget that the agricultural market is a global market. Suddenly what you get is farmers burning rainforests. And this is the unintended consequences. Because in the same way as a rainforest is an incredibly sensitive ecosystem. So if you cut down a tree, a massive tree in a rainforest, suddenly you upset the ecosystem because that tree was providing shade and that shade was allowing certain animals to live under it, certain other plants to grow. So the ecosystem is incredibly sensitive. And when you go in with a bulldozer and you cut things down or you burn things down, suddenly all sorts of life forms become affected. Yeah, okay. it's the butterfly effect. And it's the idea of the various different layers of a rainforest. So you need the highest and then the lowest and the forest gets darker and more lush and more dense. The international economy is exactly the same. That if you make some big move which interrupts the status quo, like America deciding to go against China, the ramifications are enormous. And in this case, the ramifications are that the price of soy goes up for non-American producers. Yeah. The poor Brazilian farmers say, you know what? I need income from my kids. This is a cheap income. Like the Argentinians did previously. They said, we're going to convert to soy because the Chinese want it. And you suddenly get huge forest fires started by Brazilian workers and farmers. Yeah. Supported by, ironically, the Brazilian new president who's on Donald Trump's side. I was going to ask you about him. and his- Well, he's, he's taking, you know, we're not, going to, we're not going to do anything. The point is I want to keep reinforcing to you, and again, it's this idea of global economics that everything's related. So the fires in the Amazon are not just an ecological disaster for the world, not just an ecological disaster for Brazil, but they're directly related to Donald Trump's trade policies. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. Like on Monday, I think it was, in Sao Paulo, actually went dark during the day because of the smoke. But tell me this, what is the link then between soy production in Brazil to Trump? There's two ways. There's an indirect and a direct way. The indirect way is that since China opened up, two things have happened. One is the price of manufacturing goods around the world has fallen because China is producing stuff cheaper than it used to be produced elsewhere. Yeah. The second thing, though, is the price of agricultural commodities have risen because China is now importing food and it never did before. And that's the key. And so what happens is that China is importing the food that it wants. Yeah. This is where soya, yeah. which was soy was unheard of yeah. in the West. But it's, it's a big stable for feed for cows, etc. Yeah, in countries that can't grow grass. That's what we forget, you know, that yeah. the climate actually dictates... Yeah what agriculture you have. So countries that can't go grass need another feed. But interestingly, here's the point. Trump is looking at the election. He needs an enemy. He said, China's the enemy. We're going to slap tariffs on the Chinese. The Chinese don't back down. They retaliate. Say, okay, cool, you want to do that? We're strong enough. And you know what? We're going to slap tariffs on stuff that you produce, that we need, which is agriculture. And we're going to put tariffs on what we import from you, soya. But we know that there are other producers of soy around the world. Poor old Donald doesn't think the rest of the world exists, right? <laughs> yeah. Chinese are saying, you know, it's the rest of the world. One of those places in Argentina, one of those places is Brazil. But why Brazil? Because, I mean, it seems like an awful lot of hard work to clear a rainforest to, to grow crops when Argentina have the Pampas, for instance, 
China are also, as we discussed, in Africa. So there's savannah land in, in Africa, which they seem to be snapping up and controlling more and more of Africa. So why not those places? Because land in Brazil is still cheap and because the Chinese are not really bothered as to yeah. the consequences on the ground of their actions. And I think what has happened is you have, again, forget that the history of the last 100 years has been the move from agriculture to industry to services. So, for example, if you look at our great-grandparents as Irish people, probably all of them were involved in agriculture in one shape or form. Sure. And the yearning for poor farmers to educate their kids better, to get their kids out of farming into clerical jobs and services jobs is enormous. So consequently, if farmers are told, look, if you can clear this rainforest and you can get rid of this rainforest, which for us as farmers is totally uh, and utterly useless, Mm. and you can actually plant a highly, highly productive crop like soya, and you know that the Chinese are going to underwrite a price, you do it. Yeah. And it's always this very strange conflict between the economics of the poor locals and then the concerns of the world with respect to the environment and ecology. So the poor locals are saying, this is our part of the world. We can do with it as we feel fit. Whereas the rest of the world, and you see that Leo Varadkar and Macron said they won't sign the the Mercosur agricultural deal unless these fires are stopped. But there's always this disconnect between poor farmers who want income tomorrow. Which is completely understandable. Exactly. And wealthy, ecologically concerned people who worry about the planet in the next 10 years. Mm. And this is the gap, what's happening. And of course, into this have the likes of Donald have just come and like a bull in a china shop, change the incentive structure. Yeah. Where is Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth? Look, you remember those things when we were kids. Sorry, uh, I, I by know. the way, John was the big environmentalist Greenpeace <laughs> member when we were kids. And this is, this isn't, yes, it's in the, in the 80s. Actually, I wasn't a member. I did do a degree in environmental science. No, but even but before that, you were, always into, you were always into <laughs> the Rainbow Warrior and all that carry on. A, a Rainbow Warrior from my couch. You were ahead of your time, man. Yeah, but where are they now? We're not here. They, there's no voice there. Like all revolutionary movements, if they're any good, they become incorporated into the mainstream. That's true. Okay, so Green, Greenpeace were a, a revolutionary movement and now they are the environmental policy writers of Fine Gael. Kind of crazy, but that's what happened. Yeah. So basically revolutions tend, if they're good, to be emasculated into the mainstream. And that's what's happened to the environmental movement. Right. It's a little bit sad. So anyway, we're talking about the unintended consequences of economics. And you're saying that one of the unintended consequences of the US-China trade war is the Amazon being set on fire. But how do we get from there to Australia, uh, Germany and Brexit, as we were mentioning earlier? So what I've been thinking about this week is that idea, that combination of unintended consequences and the need always to have a an extraordinarily clear idea of where you as a country fit in and to be prepared for these eventualities. So I've been interested in why 
is it that the UK seems so unprepared for what's going on? Not the UK, but the Brexiteers. Yeah. For the reality yeah. of the fact that the UK is no longer a big power. So one of the unintended consequences of Brexit has been... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To tell the Brexiteers that, you know what, guys? You're not a big power anymore. You're a small power, still significant in the world but you're not really able to bully or push people around. And then it got me thinking about countries that have had a traumatic event and have reacted to that traumatic event by changing their own mindset, by answering the question is, who are we? Yeah. So what always struck me about Brexit was how significant the echoes of the British Empire were in their rhetoric and their thinking. And the collapse of the British Empire was a traumatic event for the UK but it didn't lead to a thoroughgoing analysis of who we are and how do we change. And that got me thinking of two countries that are incredibly successful and have had this almost inventory of themselves. They said, what are we good at? What are we bad at? How do we get better? One is West Germany or Germany after the Second World War, and one has been Australia in the last 30 years. Now, West Germany after the Second World War, is a fantastic example of a country. And remember, we're talking about Britain not adjusting to the reality of the empire being over. And Brexit being the last kick of colonialist Brits who think that Britain is exceptional. So think about Germany. Germans thought they were totally exceptional, right? Prussians in particular. Then comes the Nazis. But the Nazis are feeding off a 200-year German idea that German is different. Germany is different. Germany is in the center of Europe. We're neither Slavs, we're not Mediterraneans, and we're going to be an imperial power. Yeah. And this imperial power leads them up the cul-de-sac of the Second World War, leads them into the massive trauma of the Second World War, and the very obvious evidence of what they did in pursuit of German power, from the Holocaust to the invasion of countries, all this. 
Then in 1947, when they're totally humiliated, the Germans begin the process of changing what Germany is, of going into German families and asking the question, who are we? Now, my young fellow, Cal, who you know, who was yeah. just here a minute ago, spent a year in school in yeah, Germany. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. Mad. It was mad. But if he was 12 and he went to Germany and it was a crazy idea, but he loved it. Yeah. And so he went to a German family and we took their son. So it was kind of like a hostage situation. Yeah, he used to play football with us. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to run rings around me. Yeah, but of course, anyway. young Herman. <laughs> but one of the things Cal said to me after he came back from Germany, I said, well, you know, of course you... I said, how was it? And out of the blue, he said to me, Dad... You know the way we think the Germans don't mention the war? I said, yeah. He says, they never stop mentioning it. I thought this was really interesting. Every day in school, in a small German village, in the middle of a place called the Eiffel, the teachers reiterate to the kids, your grandparents did this. We will never do this again. We did this, right? So what it is, is the total and utter change in the German psychology. And you see that in the way the German kids are taught, that we did this and we'll never do it again. They set up the Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe in the Federal Republic. The Constitutional Court was set up so that every citizen has the right to go to the Constitutional Court if they think the government is doing something against the Constitution. The reason they did this is that Hitler ripped up the Constitution. So every German has the right to actually take the government to task on any issue as long as they get a petition of 100,000 or 10,000 signatures, right. depending on the issue. And also Germany abandoned its military prowess, which was enormous. So the Federal Republic of Germany changed profoundly the notion of what being a German was and okay. said, we can never do that again. So my point is they learned from the trauma of the Second World War to create a society which is totally different from the society that was there before yeah. the Second World War which is a humble society, which despite being the richest, most dominant economy in Europe, continues to play a modest role in terms of projecting its own power because it's afraid of what it did in the past. So my point is they learnt and they are prepared from the new world. So how did they go through that? It's a massive psychological shift. Well, the first thing was, was an Allied-inspired thing called denazification, where every member of the Nazi party was reschooled in how to think about the world. Okay, because they knew that they couldn't abandon Germany. They knew that Germany, this is the Americans, Mm -hmm. knew that Germany had to be a successful country. But they had to geld this imperialist urge the Germans had, particularly the Prussian Germans, which they did. And then they created a constitution which is unbelievably egalitarian. They created checks and balances in the constitution to protect the citizen. They then absorbed in lots of migrants. They're still absorbing in lots of migrants. And they changed the notion of what it is to be German. And they allowed themselves this really interesting dichotomy, which Willy Brandt, the German chancellor in the late 60s, early 70s, described as being an economic giant and a political pygmy. The Brits, on the other hand, are an economic pygmy, perceiving themselves to be a political giant. And that's one of their big problems in Brexit. Right. So I think that what Germany did was a profoundly responsible reaction to a political trauma that was the end of the Second World War. So are you saying that Britain 
needs to go through a similar kind of shift, absolutely. psychological shift. Absolutely. What really struck me in the last week in the response to our last podcast, John, was the huge response we've got from new English listeners, all of whom said, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that Ireland was this. I didn't know. And the reason they don't know it is because they were never schooled. They never learned it. And the reason they didn't learn it is because they're explicitly, their education system did not address the end of the empire and the consequences of empire and allowed them to learn about the countries that they colonized. Whereas the Germans took the total polar opposite and as such is a country much more prepared to deal with the world, which is really the interesting thing. I was, yeah. I was noticing Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel during the week. Yeah. Boris Johnson went into the meeting with Angela Merkel, all guns blazing, saying, we have 90 days to leave the European Union and the European Union is at fault. He came out from the meeting <laughs> from Merkel saying, I have 30 days to create a solution. Yeah. Yeah. Think about this. So he goes in to the Germans, right? And he comes out, like saying, it's your fault and you're to blame. And he comes out sheepishly. The Germans have given him the timetable, not the English. Angle has said, there is a solution, but you find it. Yeah. Right? And he turns around and he goes, I'm, I'm more than happy with that. Yeah, but it, basically he came in blaming everybody else. He went out saying, I own the problem. I've got to find it. Okay, you mentioned earlier also about Australia. And I remember you interviewed Jared Diamond. Yeah, recently, and he was talking about kind of countries that go through crises, and he used that that phrase of self appraisal. You mentioned Australia earlier on. What's, yeah, well, how do they fit years ago? This? Years ago, I was doing a documentary for ABC in Australia, and we were in Fremantle, which is over mm. beside Perth, yeah. very very hot place, place the paddies should never exist, <laughs> right? And Perth were playing Perth were playing Fremantle in Aussie rules. And my Aussie mates said, you've got to come with us to the to the game. Yeah. So, and of course, I went to the Aussie Rules game. And of course, knowing GAA, we know what Aussie Rules is. But Perth were playing Fremantle. And we arrived in, and Fremantle is largely Portuguese, Croatian, Italian people, right? Is it? Yeah, okay. very, very dark, good-looking people used to the sun yeah. in Fremantle. But the, there was a couple of lads from Perth uh, about four rows down, right? And they all looked like me. Right. They look like, right, they're called bogans in America, in, in, in Bogan in Australia, right? And my mate said, oh, look at those bogans, it's Irish bogans. So I did like, what's that? And so the bogans, they all look like me, Redzers, right? Neck and gargle yeah. in the middle of the day, right? And eating meat pies as if they were from Sunderland, right? Right. In the pork middle pie. Of, yeah, like <laughs> but eating pork pie. So I said, what's the story? And this is, the, this is, this, the, my Aussie says, well, this is what you people gave us. Right? Oh pork pies and gargle. Your gift to the world. Pork pies, gargle and sunburn, right? Yeah. So I was very interested in this. And then, of course, they were joking. They said, but Australia's changed so much and now it's, it's, it's totally different. Yeah, yeah. And that always intrigued me, this, this conflict in Australia between the, the Irish-British side of Australia, which is the old Australia, and the new Australia that you see in all these cities, which is incredibly Asian. And basically is what happened in Australia is the Australians had the most explicitly racist immigration policy, almost on a par with the Afrikaners for years. Really? So much so that Asians weren't allowed to immigrate into Australia from the 1900s to about the 1970s. What, sorry, like a complete kind of Muslim well, ban that Trump well, would have? Japanese brides were banned. For, so Australian men who fought really? in the war, who had Japanese brides, were banned from coming in. 
Chinese were banned, right? They turned their back on Asia. And then after the Second World War, when Britain abandoned the, G- the Australians in Singapore, yeah. when the fall of Singapore, right? I, I was re- reading that extraordinary book by Richard Flanagan, The Long Road to the Deep North, won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago. Amazing right. book yeah, about yeah. Australian prisoners of war. And it's a love story, but around the, the, the Second World War. Anyway, after the Second World War, the Australians realised that they aren't Britain in Asia. They're actually Asians. Geographically, they are Asians. Yeah. And that took them a long time to figure out how do we come to terms with this. In the last 20 years, probably led by Paul Keating, the Irish-Australian Prime Minister and Finance Minister, they changed the nature of Australia, which was, let's have a reappraisal of who we are. We are not Britain in Asia. We are Asians. We are Asians, so we have to be open to immigration from everywhere, not unlike the Canadians have done as well. Right. And what you find now is that Australia, 27% of Australians are foreign-born. It's the highest percentage in the world. Oh, yeah. They took in more Vietnamese refugees in the beginning of the Vietnam War. They are now hugely inspired by Asian, by Chinese immigrants. Asian kids take up 70% of places in top American uni- or Australian universities. You go to Sydney, it feels like a totally different place. Yeah. So the Australians, again, had this thoroughgoing appraisal of who are we? Where do we stand in the world? What is Australia? And they realised they had to abandon this idea that it was Britain as a British colony. Right. And gradually the Asianization of Australia has happened. And interestingly, John, the unintended consequence of opening Australia to Asia has been an economic boom. Australia has had the longest consistent economic boom ever recorded in history. From 1991 to now, think about that. It's nearly 30 years. They have had no recession because they've opened themselves up. And the point then is say, these are countries that have opened themselves up, that realize we have changed, that realize the world has changed, and they've realized we have got to think of ourselves in a different way. To the Brexiteers, what has happened is they've never figured out after the empire that Britain is no longer a major power. And as a consequence now, they seem to be not just delusional, but psychologically totally lost. Yeah. And a framework to look at this is through the perspective of the six stages of grief. Right, okay, go on. So when I look at the Brexiters, I think there was a, a Swiss psychologist many years ago called Kubler-Ross, she identified grieving, loss, as being something that goes through six distinct phases. And when I look at the Brexiteers, their loss, their grief is a grief for empire. It's a grief for where Britain used to be. It's a loss that they haven't prepared themselves for of the diminution of their stature. Yeah. And Kubler-Ross said that when you're grieving, you go through these stages. The first stage is shock. The second stage is denial. The third stage is anger. The fourth stage is bargaining. The fifth stage is depression. And the sixth stage is resignation. So let's look at Brexit through these stages, or the Brexiteers, because I'm not talking about English people 
who think it's a bad idea. I'm talking about the people who run the UK now, yeah, the Brexiteers, yeah. right? The first grieving, i.e. when they realised that they were no longer a big power, when they lost their power, so this is their grief, their loss, was shock. Shock was that the EU said, okay, you want to leave? Here's the conditions. Yeah. They're like, that can't be possible, right? So the first case was shock. The shock was like the EU said, okay, but it's a thing called the withdrawal agreement. It's like a divorce. Yeah. You know, you get divorced, you can't just walk away. You've got kids, you've got alimony, you've got the house. You've yeah, got, responsibilities, right? responsibilities. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, we can just walk away and everything will be fine. So the first was shock. They were shocked. Theresa May was shocked that the EU said, all right, dudes, here's the deal. Actually, I think the first shock was the, was the result. Well, the first <laughs> one was the result, yeah, maybe. But I'm talking about the psychology of yeah. the Brexiteers, that initially they were shocked by the fact that they couldn't walk away as the Brexiteers had promised them and get a great deal with these silly Europeans and everything be hunky-dory. Yeah. Second phase is the denial phase, that they are in denial about the loss of power. And the denial phase is kind of still going on. They may be actually in that phase now. So consequently, they are blaming everybody else. They are elevating their own power. They are saying, we'll bring the Irish to heel. Ireland is the weakest link. They are in denial about their lack of power. The third phase is anger, and this will come. And this is the phase where they become angry at their own emasculation. They become angry at their lack of power. They become angry at the fact that they have to deal with the rest of the world, particularly the European Union, not as equals, but actually as inferiors. Yeah, Because that's the EU's... Well, there are flashes of that already, you can see in the media, and some of the comments from, from MPs. Exactly. So that's the anger phase. Then the next phase is the bargaining phase, and it actually will be bargaining. They'll have to realise we have to do a bargain and we have to trade. And you know what? It ain't going to be pretty. Well, as we've always said, it's like when there's no deal, there has to be a deal at some stage. So It's no deal for now. Yeah. And then the fifth phase is what Kubler-Ross said, the depression phase. When you become depressed, when you sink into a torpor, in the case of grief, it's the loss of the person. You realise the person is gone. In the case of the Brexiteers, they'll realise that their ideal Britain doesn't exist anymore and they will become depressed. And in this phase is where I think Scotland will go off on its own and Northern Ireland will become the issue. And then the final phase is acceptance. Yeah. You're resigned. You accept the new reality. You get on with your life. And interestingly, John, it's in this final three phases. So bargaining, depression and acceptance, which is the next phase of Brexit. Yeah. This is where the UK will begin to atrophy, where the Scots will go off on their own, where Northern Ireland will come into play, and ultimately where the Brexiteers will, a bit like the Serbs in Yugoslavia, they started out with this idea that we want greater Serbia. Yeah. They ended up with a Serbia that was smaller than it had ever been before. That's exactly what's going to happen to the UK. They start up with this idea of Great Britain, they will end up with Little England, exactly like the Serbs. For us, and to come back to our idea of preparation, we need to be prepared for the new Ireland that is the unintended consequence of Brexit, which will be unification or some change of constitution on this island. 
Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. And that's really the big thing for me about behavioral economics is that often we have to admit that a lot of the things we do, we do because of intuition. Who do we choose to spend our life with? Uh, What kind of house do we decide to buy? Uh, How do we decide to educate our kids? Um, Who do we want to... So we kind of go on on a hunch. Uh, We go on a hunch. Um, and we tend to trust those hunches, uh, but but do we have any evidence uh, for that? And what happens to all the hunches that are not that good? Um, are we actually creating lots of damages? And, and it turns out the answer is yes. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.